0: Seafood has this absolute amazing mystical nature to it that is just incredible.
1: Sitting in a market in Lisbon where they have beautifully designed and decorated colourful tins of of local fish. If
2: you get some amazing prawns and poach them yourself, you can really control the texture of the prawns. You can control the flavour and it's actually really easy to do and it's really quite exciting. Summer is here. And it's such a great time of year few things enhance a celebration during summer quite like seafood i'm anthony huckstep and today we have something really special we have legends of the deep in the weeds network host of dirty linen and the producers danny (laughs) Vallant.
1: how are you danny hello i'm very well anthony how are you
2: good i generally didn't get that right dirty linen and uh and legend our special guest, seafood savant, fish fiend. He's wet, he's scaly, and he's a great bloke too. Host of Fish Tales, a seafood podcast, John Sussman.
0: Howdy Hux, how are you? Howdy Danny. How are you mate?
2: Fantastic, yeah. What are you guys up to? It's summer. Finally, finally.
1: Yeah, well I'm definitely thinking... About eating a lot of seafood. I have to say the Victorian summer has uh, not been everything it might be. So there's, uh, the cover is still on the barbecue, I have to admit. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get there.
2: John, you're looking pretty calm. This time of year is pretty frantic in regards to seafood. Um, how are things faring at the moment?
0: Look, it's really interesting, Huck. Uh, there's been a, it's been a strange year. I mean, like, you know, we're back, we're out, you know, you know restaurants seem to be busier than they've ever been. But it's kind of – we normally use a couple of metrics as we sort of glide into Christmas in the seafood industry. First is Father's Day in September, and we generally see a rise in demand through to Melbourne Cup, and then we see a massive spike from Melbourne Cup to Christmas – And it hasn't actually been like that this year but it's probably not been a bad thing because supply is way down so we're actually seeing a a really massive drop in the amount of particularly wild fish coming to market um, which is a combination of a whole range of things not the least of which is there's been some fairly significant um, you know, uh, access reduction in the wild fisheries in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia in the last uh, 12 months. But uh, yeah, retail's been soft, which is strange because obviously during COVID it was, you know, it was really, really busy in the uh, in the retail world. Um, but I guess it's because everyone's seemingly out eating in restaurants. I don't know, what are you seeing out there, Danny?
1: Uh, I'm definitely seeing a lot of Seafood platters, um, probably an unconscionable number of lobsters on plates, and quite a few retro dishes like uh, even the odd mornay. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of butter and herbs, and, and I think also what I'm seeing is so many people are cooking over fire and charcoal. There's just a lot of charcoal grilled prawns, or you know things, or tuna that's just been you know kissed with the grill. Uh, so I mean, there's a lot of great flavor out there. I've got to say.
0: And in terms of how busy are you seeing the restaurants in your part of the world?
1: Yeah, really busy. Uh, I think it's a, still a mixed picture. So yeah. especially in Melbourne, you know, the suburbs are cranking and the city can still be a little bit quiet. But as we get closer and closer to, um, yeah, Christmas and, and the sales, I think people are flooding into the city. Still, you know, a lot of people are working from home at least a couple of days a week. So it's it's just a, it's a different landscape. And people that I'm speaking to... I think they see it as it's not it's not just you know a lag or a period. It's it's the new normal.
2: John, you and I have discussed uh, before that. During winter, there's an abundance of incredible seafood out of cold waters, but summer really is the celebration of seafood in this country. I mean, I have memories growing up. My stepdad used to drive to the fish markets at 4am every uh, Christmas Eve and grab grab whatever he could, usually swordfish or scampi or prawns, and we'd have a feast on Christmas Day of just about any seafood that we could fit in the budget. what is it about summer and seafood in Australia, even though there's such incredible seafood in winter as well?
0: Yeah, look, it's It's a really interesting thing. And we've, we, I know we've shared a few schooners of rushes over this topic many, uh, many times, actually. Huh? It, uh, it seems that sun and, and sea and, and surf means seafood. And, um, you know, it's, it, it seems just as mad as perhaps the notion of, of you know, spending six hours murdering a turkey in a hot oven um, on Christmas Day, that <laughs> that it just it seems much simpler. It seems much easier, and certainly in in my through my generation, we've seen this transition out of you know hot Christmas Day to a far more relaxed, simple um, protein, which is seafood, of course. I mean, it's easier to digest. It's easier to eat. It's it's um, easier to prepare, particularly if it's just a you know a cold platter or something. So it makes so much more sense for our environment and. And uh, recently, talking with some guys in South Africa about what they do at Christmas time, and they mentioned that theirs is all about sort of, you know, simple. Know, barbecued or cold seafood as well. So it, 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 it seems pretty logical to us. But uh, as you said, I mean, there's a lot of really fantastic seafood that's carrying its winter fat during the, the cooler months here. So it's um, it's almost oxymoronic in some respect. But we do have, you know, we've got some major crops of the farm prawns that come out at summertime. Um, and we have, you know, plenty, of, plenty of, uh, of other farmed seafoods that are, you know, sort of taken popular... Position in, in food culture now, um, but a lot of the wild fish surprisingly aren't in their best condition over summer, which is, which is uh, which is kind of strange. Danny, what are your memories of um, seafood as a kid
2: growing
1: up? Jeez. I mean, I have to say, fish fingers are the first thing that come to mind.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Same.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my mum didn't really cook much fish. Uh, I think that I would. She's a great cook, but as far as fish goes i would probably say she's one of those people that you know needed a bit of hand holding to get a bit braver and you know the you know the work that you guys have both done um, with your and, of course, with all the other work that you do and just, I guess, encouraging people and giving them that confidence to to cook fish. I mean, we we camped a lot, but we literally never, like, you know, threw a fish over fire or anything like that. Um, my early attempts at, at fishing were disastrous you, you cannot cook a sock um so <laughs> I'd say you know my family's probably not that unusual in Australian families in that um you know my, my dad is from Europe um uh you know living on rivers but not on the sea so there just really wasn't that culture in my family
2: John, you've uh, shared many a uh, seafood yarn over the years uh, with me and um, may or may not be over a rushes as you mentioned earlier. Um, do you have any yarns from when you were young that sort of got you into seafood and um, forced you into a career later on?
0: Yeah, look, I guess I was I was lucky that uh, I mean my mother, um, you know, bless her, was uh, was a pretty terrible cook. She could do things with um, with lamb and three vegetables that shouldn't have been legal, but um, at the same time she was very <laughs> enthusiastic and um, and she was married to a bloke who my old man who was a sort of a cross between you know, Keith Floyd and 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 probably Indiana Jones, and so you know every summer was jam-packed full of, you know, adventures and and Dave Sussman was, um, you know, considered himself you know, one of the best amateur fishermen in the world. And um, so, like, you know, there'd be plenty of you know, sort of fishing yarns and fishing stories and, you know, even if, even if he didn't catch any fish, I'd be sitting in the back of the ute in front of the Normanville Hotel where he'd be sort of inside sort of negotiating to buy fish from other amateur fishermen that were that had been out on the water for the day. But so... You know, there were plenty of Christmases where we were doing, you know, having Tommy Ruff sandwiches for lunch. That were, uh, you know, just that was all that got caught. There was no King George Whiting or cray or whiting. Well, there may be, may have been as well. So, um, yeah. So I was pretty lucky in that sense that, you know, from a very early age, I was sort of, you know, sort of tagging along with the old man fishing and. um And summer, and you know, sort of down on the Flurio Peninsula in South Australia. Then, you know, for my first 17 years of life, I'd spend 12 weeks fishing. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And then, um, you know, that that's my lasting memory of Christmas is, you know, seafood at the shack.
2: John, your uh, office overlooks the auction floor at the Sydney Fish Markets. If you were going to head downstairs right now, what what
0: would you grab? (sighs) Good question, Huck. I mean, I'd probably, I'd, I'd, having seen what was on the, the auction floor this morning, I'd probably be looking at some of the, some of the wild prawns. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're not long until Christmas now and, and prawn prices are beginning to, to take their you know, annual spike, but um, we are still really lucky in, in this country to think about the value or the, the price that we pay for, for amazing wild seafood. Um, and so some of our crustacean, I mean, we've still got lobsters at, at low prices due to the China closure. We've got you know, crabs at good value. We've got prawns at great value. Even, to be frank, oysters in this country are still represent pretty good value. So um, from that sort of big end of the platter side of the fence, the, uh, the seafood world is, is really well serviced right now. Um, so uh, I think, yeah, what am I going to do? I'll probably go and grab a cray. Um, You know, there's some crays and some prawns that are coming through at the moment that are just fantastic.
1: Um, John, you know, we always hear you should, you know, make friends with your fishmonger, have a chat, find out what's good. I mean, are you seeing – I feel like some of my local fishmongers aren't really that – up for a chat or they don't really know much beyond you know the where where who the wholesaler is they're not really going back and back and back all the way to to the ocean or the farm I mean what do you what how do you find like the right fishmonger and then what are some of the starter questions that you ask them (laughs)
0: Look, it's a really good point, Danny. I mean, you know, we could we could sort of swim through the world of the problems of the seafood industry um, and why retail tends to be sort of lagging somewhat by comparison to sort of other proteins. I mean we've seen a we've seen a squadron of rock star butchers arrive in the last sort of half generation. We've got amazing dairy merchants and delicatessen operators and, and even fruit and veg guys that are really showing the leading the way in terms of providing that that stewardship, if you will. Um, seafood is a really tough business, there's no question about it. It's wet, cold, smelly, slimy, highly volatile, um, and there's this sort of expectation. That you know, when you go to the fishmongers, you should be able to find you know a three-tiered cascading display of everything that swims. Um, where you don't expect that at a butcher shop. You know, you you walk into a butcher's and he's got four animals or five if he carries chooks. But you know, somehow, somewhere in the scheme of things, there's been this expectation that there's this massive, you know, continuum of supply in seafood, um, and that does create a whole range of issues. And further to that, we don't actually have a national industry body. That stewarding, um, you know, I guess the, no, I won't won't call it professionalism, but just maybe just knowledge perhaps. And so unlike, you know, being a butcher or a baker, where you go through your formal training, and even if you're the world's worst butcher or baker, you've actually had some stewardship, official stewardship as to, you know, what constitutes good, better, best. Um, So, It is a complex and very difficult question, and, and good fishmongers are hard to find. There is no question about it. But that's the joy of the search, in my opinion. It, it, you know, once you find a good fishmonger, and there are plenty of good fishmongers out there, you want to hang on to them, and uh, and you do want to have that relationship. And yes, I understand breaking the ice with them can be can be quite difficult. Um, as you say, I mean the supply chain in seafood is a lot more convoluted than it is in, uh, in say red meat. But that's a function of everyone in the supply chain playing pass the parcel to literally get the seafood out of their hands before it goes off. Um, and so you don't have those sort of that long connectivity that you might have in other in other areas of the food business. But you know, on a positive note, the, you know, the the quality of Australian seafood continues to improve. And despite the fact that I'm moaning about the fact that there's a reduction in, in production, um, the quality team is getting better and better all the time. And we can sort of, you know, generally be buying with confidence that there is a, a good quality. In terms of the things that we would typically be searching out in terms of provenance and history and, and who actually caught the seafood or grew the seafood. Um, yeah, look, we've got a job to do in the industry to try and bring the those sort of people f- further upstream in the supply chain and get them in front of you to uh, to understand who they are and, and, and how they, what they go do, you know, what they do and how they go about it.
1: Are there any you know species that are really safe bets, perhaps some underloved ones that you know even if you don't have a fishmonger that's up for a huge chat about things, are there some real go-to's that perhaps we're not looking at as often as we might? Yeah,
0: look, it's a good point. I mean, you know, perhaps a really easy, easy point to start with is even if your fishmonger's not up for a chat, if you walk into the shop and you, there's something that's abundant and it's relatively inexpensive, then that's what you should be having a think about. Um, and you know, I'd be, I'd be forcing the hand. I mean, you know, I'd be forcing the hand of the conversation of saying, well, when did this come in and where did you get it? And if they got it from the market or if they got it from a, a vendor, whatever. But you know, as a point of reference, if there's if there's a volume display and it's a and it looks like it's a good value, then it's worth having a crack at. Um, I always find it difficult to just nominate a specific species because I think that that kind of almost flies in the face of what we want to try and do by eating underutilised species, which is to sort of think think about, you know, the, the whole nature of sustainability. And sustainability is about not just having a you know sort of a single species focus on our plate or on, a, on our pan so you know we might love a skinless boneless portion of salmon that is perfectly cut but if that's all we eat then it's not a really sustainable practice irrespective of what the salmon farmer may have done in the production you know we've got an obligation as consumers to eat sardines one day or eat squid another day or eat octopus a further day and to sort of really undertake the role of enhancing our own repertoire. Even if we're not comfortable with, in cooking it, we still need to recognise that you know we can't just eat the same thing all the time when it comes to seafood because that's not sustainable behaviour. Um, but having mentioned the sardines and the squid and the octopus, these are species that you know, in less than half a generation, we've seen these three species come off the hook and get onto the plate, and um, you know they've moved from bait to the plate, which is um, which is fantastic. And those sort of things, and you know, they're delicious and they're nutritious, and when they're well well handled, they're absolutely supreme products. So, and
2: summer can get pretty hot, and people are eating seafood. But what are some of the keys to handling seafood
0: during summer and eating it at, at its optimum? Keep it cold. In the temperature, you know, particularly heat, is the is the absolute antichrist for seafood. Um, it's got to be kept cold. You know, it it really you know it is. There, I mean, whilst I would suggest that you know, like not eating not eating seafood at, at at one degree necessarily gives you all of the enjoyment that you're going to get out of eating it when it's sort of like ten degrees, where the sort of flavours and the fats start to really come out. Um, but in the interim, from harvest to plate, it needs to be kept as cold as possible, and that's that's absolutely worth the investment of a five-dollar bag of ice from the petrol station to uh, to make sure that you've just gone to those extra steps to to keep the prawns under ice until you're actually you know sort of ready to eat them. Um, you know, keep any fish that you've bought well chilled, well chilled. And ideally, if you've gone to the fish market and you've bought it and it's in a plastic bag, get it out of the plastic bag, dab it dry with kitchen towel paper, wrap it in, in like a go-between or a baking paper and put it at the bottom of the fridge where it's coldest. Um, that's kind of really where you should be thinking. And ideally, you've got a dedicated Tupperware container with a with a cake rack in it that you can just sit that wrapped of fish or seafood in a sealed environment uh, at the bottom of the fridge.
1: Huck, what's, um, what are some of your go-to seafood dishes?
2: Well, uh, over summer, I actually really like to poach prawns. Um, a lot of people buy prawns already um, cooked and, and that's fair enough because everyone's time poor and everyone has different budgets. But if you, if you get some amazing prawns and poach them yourself and make a simple prawn cocktail or something like that, you can really control the texture of the prawns. You can control the flavour, and it's and it's actually really easy to do, and it's really quite exciting. It just requires a lot of salt, a lot of water. Um, I think it's about 160 grams um, per uh, two litres, isn't it, John? Is that right?
0: Yep. Yep. Bang on. Eight percent. Yep. Yeah, and um,
2: yeah, which is pretty salty water. It's not. It's not a soup. You don't want to be drinking it afterwards. But. Um, You know, you cook the prawns in um, that really salty water very quickly and get them out into an ice uh, ice bath and um, the texture, the flavour, like... It, it changes a prawn cocktail because, you know, you can't control the quality of those that are already cooked when you when you purchase the ones you purchase. But um, that's something i definitely go to. And I also like to poach a whole side of king salmon as well, um, just in like a court bouillon. Um, you don't have to do anything. That's the great thing about it is, is that you, all you have to do is heat up, you know, the fancy vegetable stock essentially and um, pour it over a whole side of salmon and just let it sit in the hot water until the water cools. And then um, peel the skin off, have it with a um, horseradish creme fraiche or something like that and some salad and vegetables and it is the best way to feed a big group of people. And it's
0: bloody delicious.
1: Love that.
0: And how simple is that? That's absolutely right, yeah.
1: I think one of my favourites is uh, flathead tails in a uh, beer batter and just just fried with, um, yeah, baked potatoes or, yeah, shoestring fries if I can be bothered, but just so simple. I actually um, learnt that from Michael Bacash where he cooked up some flathead on the beach at Mount Martha exactly using, it's just, just like, flour, make it well in it, break in a couple of eggs, half a can of beer, drink the rest of the beer while the fish cooks. And, um, yeah, it's pretty fail-safe and so tasty.
2: John, do you have a favourite seafood eating story that you've had around the world that you can
0: share?
1: (laughs) I've got about
0: uh, 58,000 of them, I think, actually, Huck. Um, (laughs) Nothing... Nothing fails to amaze me about the uh, wonderful world of seafood eating in terms of just the flavors and textures and and the time and place i mean you know it 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 can be hanging your feet over the wharf at at uh, Port Elliot eating some blue summer crabs that were just out of the water or it can be you know having an oyster that was in an estuary on the Hawkesbury you know 15 minutes prior or it can be you know sitting in a sitting in a back alley in in Bangkok eating a barbecued fish i, I think that that's the thing that really excites me about seafood is just this myriad of experiences that you can have and they don't have to be they don't have to be grand they don't have to be sitting in a you know fancy restaurant in 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 a big city they can be just really humble experiences that just really relate to the nature of the protein that i don't think you get in any other in any other terrestrial food um, seafood has this absolute amazing mystical nature to it that is just incredible and it and it creates uh, a nostalgic sense of relationship with where it's come from quite quickly uh, so it's every seafood experience for me is a good one unless
1: it's bad <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. How about you Danny <laughs> uh I reckon i mean i don't know. I hope it's okay to talk about tinned fish, but what came to mind was um, sitting in a market in Lisbon, where they have these incredible stalls with all these beautifully designed and decorated, colourful tins of, of local fish. So yes, sardines and and mussels, and um, I don't know what, like mackerel. I want to say I don't, I don't. Um, that might be wrong, but that you can have them opened for you. And, um, yeah, drink them with a glass of Portuguese wine, which is an adventure in itself. Uh, so, yeah, that just really, that really stays with me.
2: Yeah, and tin seafood is actually quite extraordinary. I mean, it gets a bit of a bad rap because it sounds like a sandwich filler in Australia. But, you know, you look at somewhere like Continental Deli in Sydney that has the most extraordinary tin seafood from around the world. And, um, you know, it can be an absolute um, delight and
0: change your world.
1: And with, with a canned martini as well.
0: <laughs> so I mean, look, I'm, I'm totally in agreement there. I mean, if I was to sort of put a prediction in for the next, you know, sort of 24, 36 months, I think we're going to see the the rise and rise of the enjoyment of conservice of you know quality quality conserved seafood in in tins and other forms, but like predict particularly the tins. Um, you know, it's been it's been sort of for one hundred and fifty years in in uh, in europe and and parts of North America, but I think we're just seeing the beginning of the journey here in Australia where we 're moving up from the eighty cent tin of of serena at woollies to uh, to other things but not to say that that eighty cent tin of serena from woolies is a bad product at all. in fact, to the contrary I think we've it's still you know a massive part of our seafood annual cons- seafood consumption i mean it's kind of just flown under the radar I think for a lot of us that live in restaurant land but um, um, you know it's still the single largest seafood item sold in this country is is tin tuna. so um, you know there's a lot of people that that's their first experience with seafood, their first entry into the wonderful world of seafood. so um, but I think what we're talking about now is is the even more exciting aspect of these beautiful artis- artisanal um, incredible, breadth of flavour and texture of, uh, of the conservators. And I'm I'm really excited about where we're going to go in this country with those over the next few years.
1: What, what about you, Huck? Have you got a favourite seafood eating experience?
2: Oh, goodness. Um, I, <laughs> I, like John, I have many. And uh, in a past life, pre-COVID, I was a, a restaurant critic eating in far too many restaurants a week and ha- have had some extraordinary experiences. But one that probably comes to mind the most is um, is I have a great love for sea urchin. And uh, I, was, I was actually with John down in um, Coffin Bay and we were hanging our feet over the edge of a boat um, at, on an oyster lease of all things. And there was some sea urchin um, on the poles uh, in, the, in the oyster lease and we pulled them off and uh, John somehow pulled out a boat a loaf of white slice. I don't know where he pulled it from, but uh, and <laughs> having having uh, white bread and uh, the butter of the sea with your toes in the water was. Uh, I just got a shiver thinking about it. It was just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary.
0: And and that is the absolute beauty, Huck. Is that those that level of simplicity is uh, is what drives the enjoyment of seafood. It, it doesn't need a. Uh, any spherification or or, um, Parco jets to to convert it into something that's delicious.
2: (laughs) John, you've been um, trying to educate people and and hold their hand into the world of seafood for a long time. And you wrote a book, which I've heard of, the Australian Fish and Seafood Cookbook. You wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) With a couple of uh, um, interesting co-authors. Tell us a bit about the purpose of that book and and you know your mission to try and you know, shepherd people into seafood and make things a bit easier and um, not as intimidating
0: well I think in, in fairness Huck you know you were the genesis of, of that whole idea I mean you know I think you just got sick of me being your you know partner in various in partnering crime and various r- reviewing, and me bitching and moaning about the fact the chef didn't know anything what they were doing with the with the seafood, and me as having spent having spent twenty years as a fishmonger crying in the shower at one30 a.m. thinking what sort of bullshit am I going to have to listen to from chefs for the next sixteen hours, had driven me to the <laughs> point of despair that you said, well stop whinging about it, Sussman, put it out on paper. So um, <laughs> no, that that was the, that was the purpose of the exercise, I think, as I recall. Um, it's it, it is very much so. I mean, as we said before, I mean, you know, look, it's such a unique category in terms of the vast array of different animals that you're dealing with, and in the void of there being, you know, any sort of formal stewardship by us as an industry, or indeed, you know, the, the food the food schools and colleges, um, you know, I think that they're still using the same the same teaching methods as they used back in the 70s and 80s of, of for the seafood category where, you know, sort of you know, day one, class one, it's soul, bond, femme, and the first step is, you know, defrost the frozen soul. Um... So I think that there's a really there's a there, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a long road to go in terms of getting people to understand and and uh, and experience if it. but my 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 enjoyment is actually seeing when you get people to experience something for the first time I mean sea urchin is a classic example Huck I mean it's it's such a unique um, animal and it's such a unique and defining flavor and texture profile that when you put sea urchin in anyone's mouth, and I don't care whether it's a three-year-old or an 80-year-old that hasn't eaten it before, and, and you can just see their eyes go wide open, and you know, it might polarise, might, they, might, they might hate it, they might love it, but at least it's got some thinking about that seafood. And I don't think there's a single other seafood that has that depth of reaction as soon as you put it in anyone's mouth. Similarly, if you put a really, really beautiful piece of just fresh fish... Um, that's just simply simply grilled into anyone's mouth. I'd, I'd I'd argue that you know that you cannot have a great experience. You cannot not have a great experience in that environment because it's just so easy and delicious to eat. So it's the the challenge really is getting getting people to get outside of their comfort zone. And that may be salmon, or it may be tuna, or it may be. A prawn, get them outside of their comfort zone and get them to explore and, and experiment. Um, and look, you know, it's it is it's a complex it's a complex discussion. I mean, we live in Australia. We live, you know, we've got an amazing abundance of different species, but they are very they can be very regional. So you know, media might focus on a fish that's coming out of Corner's Inlet in Victoria, but that's not much good to a bloke who's living in Cairns or Carnarvon. Um, and similarly, you know, there are local preferences in those waters as well. So it's a very, you know, it's a multi-tiered issue that we face in seafood and the enjoyment of seafood. But the the challenge really is for all of us to just get out and 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 eat more. He says with a gratuitous plug.
1: <laughs> I'm happy to take that on as, as a challenge and an opportunity.
0: Yeah, great. That's the stuff. But, I mean, look, you know, what are you guys seeing? I mean, you guys are food professionals. I mean, Danny, you're in and out of restaurants all day, every day. You're talking to chefs all day, every day. Huck, the same with you. What are you hearing about, you know, what are they thinking about seafood at the moment? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of one out, one back in that conversation a bit.
1: Uh, I think definitely everyone's interested in sustainability, uh, you know, on every part of the menu and the kitchen. So that's that's a big conversation. Uh, so as much as Tassie Salmon is probably still ubiquitous in restaurants at a certain level, I'd say there's definitely people exploring beyond that, which is great. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean I guess generally and you know certainly over the past, you know, 10 and 20 years a lot more raw dishes. I'd say it feels like the the year of the kingfish carpaccio or the kingfish sashimi is, is is has extended for about 10 years. So <laughs> <laughs> that's um that's pretty ubiquitous and I suppose <laughs> it's almost it's almost like yeah, it can be a bit dull, but it also it's almost like a control dish, like a tiramisu, which I'll always order if it's on a menu. It's like, can they do a good one? If someone can surprise me with a raw kingfish dish, then I think that's pretty good. Um, so I don't know. I feel like overall it's still a bit safe. I'd love to see more species on menus, but we're getting we're getting somewhere. I'm eating a lot of delicious, uh, delicious food, that's for sure.
2: One of the things that... Um I find fascinating is the influence of social media which has been good and bad on the food industry however you want to look at it but I think it's been a real advantage for seafood in in a lot of ways because chefs are seeing what other chefs are doing you know in an instant and and I think that's been a benefit for seafood which has been a little bit harder for you know it's a harder category to get right for chefs um, compared to some of the terrestrial meats and things like that. And, and seeing and getting excited about different species being shown um, on their phone or cooking techniques has helped them or shepherded them and given them more confidence to do things as well. And I think as a result, we're seeing uh, a bigger array of species on menus. And, um, you know, sometimes you might see too many of the same cooking technique. I think uh, fish cooked over fire is, uh, could be like the uh, kingfish carpaccio, of uh, 2023, but um, but I think I think there's a benefit to that social media aspect um, where species are being seen and being seen to be um, championed on menus and that's having a filter effect.
0: Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I'd I, I certainly agree entirely. I, I, I'd sort of perhaps put the point that there's a bit of Cirque du Soleil action going on social media as well, where, uh, some, some techniques are being presented that require a, a really unique set of skills uh, and a really unique environment to actually execute them safely as much as tastily. And um, I fear that some of, some of those techniques are perhaps taking, you know, chefs with not the same level of skill as perhaps the practitioner that's displaying them um, down the wrong path. And you know, I'd like to see a bit of moderation in that regard. I, you know, there's a there's a real concern for me about this current fad of of dry aging or aging fish, for example. Um, I'm I'm yet to be convinced of its real merits, and um, and yet it's it's attracted popular culture amongst the chef community. Like I've never seen anything in seafood in 35 years, um, and you know, there are there are some elements there that make me nervous that perhaps chefs aren't as confident as they should be because they don't have the skills they necessarily need in the repertoire of, of seafood preparations that they're, they're just blindly following um, you know with a sense of necessity rather than uh, of actual sort of achievement and uh, I think that that's something that really needs to be really needs to be questioned and questioned quite loudly um, for, you know it's it's not a it's not a it's not a suggestion of fault. It's just more of a suggestion that I think we need to be aware that, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to seafood. Uh, I'm uh, absolutely enamoured with Neil Perry's restaurant, Margaret, where he's chosen to only sell wild seafood and it's only ever grilled. And it's it's extraordinary because it speaks to me of the first time I ate it at Scots in London, or the Ivy, or you know Dave Pasternak's you know seminal seafood restaurant in New York, Esker. You know these global restaurants that are only ever serving simple grilled wild fish. Um, you know champions like Mike Bacash. Uh, similarly, they're following that path of just they don't have to reinvent themselves with any crazy techniques. They're just sort of really doing an amazing job of respecting um, what is a very fragile protein.
1: I mean, it, it sounds like what you're talking about is that, you know, chefs perhaps aren't as grounded as they could be with, with these skills or this, you know, contact perhaps with whole fish, with just, you know, being, finding the beauty in, um, you know, filleting and portioning a whole fish where it's they sort of uh, want to fly before they, they can walk. To some degree i mean does that go back to tafe to apprenticeships like where do you think we we pick this up to improve it
0: Look, Danny, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, you know, there is only... The finger can only be squarely pointed at us in the seafood industry. We have failed in our job as the contemporary food world has exploded in terms of its thirst for information to deliver um, that stewardship of handling and preparation and enjoyment to a large extent. Um, And so in the void of that solid grounding that we as an industry should be providing the professional in the trade, let alone the consumer, um, there's in that void. It's been filled by you know the Cirque du Soleil style um, preparations that have meant that there's this sort of immediate attraction because they are the you know, when they're brilliantly executed, they are amazing. But um, you know the degree of difficulty is so high that it's not a, it's not an every cook activation. And, I, and that's my fear, is that, you know, we collectively, the educators, and the education has to come back to the industry. You know, we're at fault here. We haven't provided the TAFEs. I mean, it's easy to have a crack at the TAFEs, but we haven't provided them with the stewardship or, or the motivation or the inspiration to, to change um, what they do on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I do, I mean, I am really hopeful that, you know, and sh- the, the market must see that places like Bacash, you know, a 30-year veteran of doing, a 35-year veteran of doing what he's doing is busier than he's ever been. Neil Perry's new restaurant is the busiest restaurant in Sydney by a country mile. Um, the, sim- the really sympathetic, of the execution is that you've got this market that has got money and they're prepared to spend, but they're not necessarily looking for um, you know that Cirque du Soleil experience every time they go out.
1: <laughs> we're so savage about the Cirque du Soleil, this <laughs> podcast. Hey,
0: I love, I, I love Cirque du Soleil. I, I love <laughs> Cirque du Soleil.
1: <laughs> we have no particular set against Cirque du Soleil. We just don't want to eat it. Is that what we're saying?
0: Yeah, when it comes to eating, I'm never a fan of unicycling, breathing fire and juggling eggs at the same time. But, uh, you know, that's that's just me. Well, speaking
2: speaking of eating, do you guys know what you'll be cooking in regards to seafood or serving sort of this festive season?
1: I reckon I might copy you with the king salmon because that sounds super easy. Like you could do it ahead and then I'm just feeling some, you know, really fresh, herby garnishes um i've just co-written an iranian cookbook and there's just such a beautiful abundance of herbs in that cuisine that i've really become very inspired by um so it's sort of like you know if uh you know, an Italian Caesar recipe that t- calls for one clove of garlic, then naturally put in 10. So I'm applying the same principle to herbs at the moment. It's just like, yeah, build it up, baby. So I'm, <laughs> I'm think- thinking um, that, yeah, king salmon with a whole bunch of herbs.
2: Well, that book is my favourite book of the year, Danny. It's bloody brilliant. And that and that dish does love a lot of herbs. Um, John, do you know
0: what you're doing for Christmas? Well, I'm hoping not to be subject to the uh, 4,000 light beers and a burnt turkey at my in-laws. Um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Huck. It's going to be poached prawns, poached fish um, and perhaps a few crays. And, of course, we're going to see oysters. We're going to see rock oysters this summer that we hadn't seen for the last couple of years in any abundance. And, you know, early conditions are suggesting that they're going to be some absolute beauties. So, yeah.
2: Woo-hoo. I'm pretty excited by that. I mean, the day that I learned to shuck an oyster changed my life, good and bad. Like, it <laughs> meant that I could never buy a pre-shucked oyster again, but it also means that every time we have oysters at a family get-together, I'm I'm leaning over the sink for about an hour making sure everyone gets oysters.
0: As you should, Huck.
1: But you, get a, you sling yourself a couple, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> one for you, one for me. Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> Love it.
2: Well... Um, John, host of Fish Tales, a seafood podcast, and Danny Vallant, of course, from Dirty Linen and the producers. Um, awesome, as always, to catch up with you guys. Have a cracking summer. Um, we love what you do on the Deep in the Weeds podcast network.
0: Um, let's catch up soon for that
2: drink and a bit of seafood.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much. Huck. Great to hang out with you and John today.
0: See you soon, guys.